Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're tackling our first religious leader, which means this episode might be a bit rough and contentious for some folks. Our focus for the week is Rodrigo Borgia, also known as Pope Alexander VI. Alexander VI is one of the most infamous figures in Catholicism, so maybe be wary if you don't want an episode that's going to go into the darker side of the church during the Renaissance. Rodrigo Borgia's family is incredibly famous, so forgive me if I dive into tangents here and there about them instead of just focusing on him. But luckily, Rodrigo, as Pope Alexander VI, was perhaps the most powerful man in all of Europe during this point in history, so there will be plenty of interesting stories to go around about he was regarded during his own lifetime and his legacy in the modern times. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the 15th century during the height of the Renaissance in Rodrigo Borgia, Sinner or Saint. Even though we have covered a ruler who lived during the Renaissance before back with Vlad the Impaler, he was kind of removed from all of that while living in Eastern Europe on the border of the Ottoman Empire. Alexander VI, as Pope, lived in Italy the place many people would call the heart and birthplace of the Renaissance. I won't explain the Renaissance as a whole because it was a period of several hundred years that covered an entire continent and had many different parts, but I'll go into a brief overview of the time period and explain a bit more detail about the Italian Renaissance. The term Renaissance comes from the Italian word Renaschita, meaning rebirth. Most of the time when you refer to Renaissance with a capital R, you're talking about the European Renaissance that followed the Middle Ages, but there have been several other periods of history that also use the word in their name. So what sort of rebirth are we talking about here? It was a time when the people of Europe were rediscovering ideas of art and philosophy from the ancient Greeks and Romans that had been lost to time with the fall of the Roman Empire. Most people give a general time period of the Renaissance as lasting from the 14th century to the 17th century, though there are definitely Renaissance-like ideas that existed in the 13th century, like Dante's Divine Comedy, that sometimes pushed the starting point up a bit. So as far as actual starting points go, it's a bit hard to peg down what exactly can be considered the starting date of the Renaissance, but let's dig into a couple of big ideas that got the ball rolling. As I said, this was a time period where people were rediscovering the culture of classical civilizations, mostly the ancient Greeks and the Romans. But how did they rediscover this information they had lost? Well, sometimes they literally just found things they thought they'd lost long ago. If you listened to the last episode about Emperor Nero, you'll remember that his palace, the Domus Aurea, was discovered when someone fell through a hole in the ground. Now, that is just one example, but for the most part, the European people did not really discover anything that had actually been lost underground or in ruins. True, there was plenty of information that had been destroyed during the Germanic invasions of the Roman world, but the Greeks and Romans did not have the only copies of their books and arts. The Renaissance comes after the Middle Ages, which is also called the Dark Ages, but that is definitely a misnomer. The Middle Ages were home to the Crusades, the glorious war for God and country against the threat of Islam and all that other bad stuff. 
the Muslim nations were actually where a lot of this information was found because their nations were not reliant on Rome to survive and therefore never lost all these ideas. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that the Muslim world has always been some sort of backward society, you can hit them with that piece of trivia. By the way, you shouldn't even say that about the modern Muslim world. So, despite the Crusades being an overall hideous religious and cultural inquisitions, they actually did help bring about the Renaissance. The artistic side of the Renaissance was mostly able to flourish due to the very rich nobles of Europe, especially those in Italy, spending their money on artists who were either trying out new styles or recreating the styles of Greece and Rome. I won't spend too much time talking about this aspect because that is definitely a history section for someone like the Medici family, but some historians will pinpoint the beginning of the Renaissance to a challenge in 1401 between two artists, Lorenzo Ghiberti and Filippo Brunelleschi. They were rivals who were vying to get the honor to design the doors of the baptistery of the Duomo, the main cathedral in Florence. Ghiberti would win and create a very lovely piece of art. But it was this major sense of competition between artists of all kinds that spurred on what we really think of as the Renaissance. This time would see the rise of all types of names that we still know today. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Donatello, Bebop, Rocksteady, Master Splinter, uh, that's too many names to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles roster, sorry. One of the last big advancements and jumpstarts for the Renaissance was the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg. Gutenberg had originally been a goldsmith in Germany whose invention allowed the quick copying and reproduction of books, which allowed books to become something the ordinary citizen could get their hands on. I mean, not really, but there was a greater chance for them to get books than there had been before. In the Middle Ages and before, literacy was usually reserved for nobility and the religious castes. Christian monks were responsible for most of the literature production, meaning reading and writing were something not meant for the common man, also that most written works were heavily religious in nature. Literacy would technically not really skyrocket until after the Renaissance, but this was definitely the stepping stone. The most published book during this time was the Bible, still is today by the way. Before Gutenberg's invention, the monks were usually writing in Latin. However, people were now allowed to print books in their own languages. So even though it was all people reading the Bible, it actually allowed people who did not speak Latin to read what was actually being said in their holy book. And it's lucky that they could, because the church was the most important institution in Renaissance Europe. Christianity was spread across Europe by the Romans when it became the official religion of the empire. However, Rome was not eternal and collapsed, bringing about the Middle Ages. The only power structure left in Europe during this time was the Christian church in Rome. However, the church was not without its own problems. In the 11th century, the church divided in two between the Roman church and the Eastern Orthodox church during the East-West Schism of 1054. I'm not going to go into that because it's way too much information that would need to be explained about theology. Just know that the church now has a smaller area of control than it previously did. Then, almost 300 years later in 1309, the church found itself turned on its head when the seat of the papacy was changed from Rome to Avignon, France during a conflict between the French monarchy and the church. 
Seven popes would reign from Avignon until one of the Avignon popes, Gregory XI, died while he was away in Rome. The church in Rome then sought to revert things to their normal place by electing a new Roman pope. This ushered in an era called the Western Schism that we'll probably cover at a future point, where there were actually two popes at the same time, both claiming to be the true pope. Things would eventually return to normal, one pope in Rome situation in 1417. But even with all this conflict in the church, it still remained an absolute authority, and I haven't even touched on the Holy Roman Empire yet, which I won't in this episode. Because the church doesn't pay taxes, the Vatican had more money than some European kings, meaning they could finance any project they wished. Some of these projects were actually secular in nature, including helping to finance exploration and colonization efforts in the New World. While other major undertakings included hiring the famous artists of the time to help rebuild and design St. Peter's Basilica, which had fallen into disrepair during the Avignon Papacy. Though the Western Schism actually resulted in the Pope having less power than before in order to prevent another bizarre situation like the previous century, a Pope in the 15th century still had plenty of power. And unfortunately, sometimes that power was not used for the greatest of means. Corruption ran wild. It was very common for a pope to sell positions within the Vatican to the highest bidders, a crime called simony. But one pope, despite his best efforts to help his people and allow the culture of the Renaissance to flourish, is infamous for his corruption and lavish lifestyle. A man whose very actions, while common for the time and actually sometimes beneficial to the people, are said to be the basis for the word nepotism. Alexander VI, birth name Rodrigo Lanzol y de Borja, was born in 1431 in the town of Sativa, which is near Valencia, Spain. He's more commonly called Rodrigo Borja, his last name being the Italianized version of Borja. His maternal uncle was Pope Calixtus III, who would then adopt young Rodrigo into the Borja family in 1455. As a young adult, Rodrigo studied law at the University of Bologna in Italy. His life in the church began very quickly after his schooling when his uncle ordained him as a deacon in 1456, after which he quickly became the deacon cardinal of San Nicola in Carcere, a church in Rome. A deacon cardinal is a cardinal who was not previously a priest or bishop. They are more often referred to as lay cardinals because of this. Deacon cardinals are not held to all the rules as regular members of the Catholic clergy, as they can still get married or remain in an existing marriage prior to their ordination. And fun facts about cardinals, but the position of cardinal is not actually a position to which a person is ordained. It's not like you have to be a priest and then a bishop in order to be a cardinal. A cardinal is simply someone in the church who gets to elect the pope. So at this point, Borgia already had a direct line to the pope, and he was only 25 years old. The year after his appointment as deacon cardinal, Rodrigo's uncle appointed him as the vice chancellor of the apostolic chancery which was a department in the Vatican that was, at this point in history, in charge of collecting funds for the papal army. At the age of 37 in 1468, 
Borgia was finally ordained as a priest, and three years later, was consecrated as a bishop serving over the Diocese of Albano, which is just south of Rome. By this point, Calixtus III had been dead for a bit over a decade, and Rodrigo had served in the inner circle of the next two popes, Pius II and Paul II. He would continue serving in the highest rankings of the church for the next two popes as well, amassing all kinds of wealth, as well as political power and knowledge, with some calling him one of the richest men in Europe at the time. Though today we might think of Borgia's quick rise to power, especially by help of his uncle, as a bit suspicious, probably made even worse by the fact that his rise to power was in the church, this was actually pretty common for back in the day. Even in the earliest days of Christianity, the leaders of the church surrounded themselves by close friends, families, and others they could trust. As the church grew in power, this obviously would come with its own set of problematic aspects. Friends and family of the Pope could essentially become as powerful as a prince overnight if they played their cards right, or maybe even just ask politely. What I'm basically trying to get at is, at this point, Rodrigo had not really done anything wrong by the standards of 15th century Catholicism in his religious career. Except for when it came to Venoza de Cantane. Born Giovanna de Candia, Venoza being a nickname for Giovanna, she was one of Rodrigo's many mistresses. If you're thinking that maybe the pair started this fling during his time as a deacon cardinal, remember he could be married at this point, uh, sorry but you'd be wrong. You might also be thinking, maybe priests could get married back then, which, sorry, you'd also be wrong. The church affirmed a vow of celibacy for priests back in 1139, and by this point in 1470, Rodrigo Borgia was very much a priest and only a year away from becoming a bishop. Venoza is believed to have been an innkeeper in Rome when she met Borgia, and some rumors suggest that he helped her secure more property throughout the city with his political power. Though she would be his longest serving mistress, it's believed that Borgia was with several other women during their relationship. And remember, he's still a priest, a cardinal even? Together, Borgia and Venoza would have four children, Giovanni, born in 1474, Cesare, born in 1476, Lucrezia, their only daughter, born in 1480, and Joffrey, born in 1482. All four children would go by the surname Lancel y de Borja. And you might be thinking again, well, surely Rodrigo is going to hide these children, he's a priest and priests can't have children. Again, you would be wrong. His children would grow up in luxury and Rodrigo openly claimed them all as his own, except for sometimes Joffrey, sorry buddy. And when Rodrigo would eventually be elected Pope, his children would become some of the most powerful figures in Renaissance Roman society. And what of Venoza? Though she would continue to have immense wealth and privilege, her relationship with Rodrigo would begin to fizzle out soon after the birth of Joffrey. At this point, she would be about 40, Obviously too old for Rodrigo, I say in loathing sarcasm. Like I said, he had other mistresses and probably other illegitimate children by them. I'm not going to speak on Borgia's behalf, 
but it is interesting that only the four children he had with Venoza would go on to become major players in Italy. Maybe he did love her in some way, maybe not. Either way, Rodrigo had bigger fish to fry than a secular love life. As both a cardinal and bishop, and overall important man within the Vatican circle, Borgia was aiming for the very top, and in 1492, he would soon get that chance. On July 25, 1492, Pope Innocent VIII passed away. His papacy was marked by tense relations with the Ottoman Empire, including the Ottoman Sultan sending Innocent his brother as a hostage to ensure peace between the two groups, whom Borgia would later give to the King of France when he was made Pope. Innocent even tried to stage a failed crusade against the Ottomans. He also had a very poor relationship with the Kingdom of Naples, which constituted the southern half of Italy. In August of that year, the cardinals gathered for the papal conclave to elect a new pontiff. This is also the first papal conclave to be held in the Sistine Chapel. Twenty-three cardinals participated in the vote that would end up electing Borgia to the papacy. For comparison's sake, 115 cardinals voted in the conclave that elected the current pope, Francis II. There were four other cardinals at the time, but they weren't in Rome for the election. Let's talk about the papal conclave for a moment. If you thought that maybe this affair was a peaceful matter with complete regard for the sanctity of electing the most important figure in Catholicism, you'd be kinda wrong. The papal conclave is always a highly political affair, even in the modern day. If you want to see depictions of a papal conclave, I suggest watching the movie The Two Popes or the HBO series The Young Pope. The latter is heavily dramatized, but both show how secularly focused a papal election can be, and that's in the 21st century. Papal conclaves in the Renaissance were a nightmare for political strife. The conclave that had elected Innocent VIII basically boiled down to two sides debating whether the Vatican should support the Italian League or the supremacy of the Papal States. Remember how I mentioned simony earlier? Selling off positions in the church, aka a crime? That was usually how popes ended up getting enough votes to win. And in order to become pope, you needed a two-thirds majority of the votes, which was usually not easy when some cardinals absolutely hated each other. On top of that, the electing body of the papal conclave was made up of cardinals with their own personal agendas and biases. Ten of the 23 cardinals voting were made cardinals by a relative, so they were known as cardinal nephews. And a fun fact about cardinal nephews, that's usually considered where we get the term nepotism. The Italian word for nephew is nipote. I mean, having your uncle give you a high-ranking church job definitely fits that bill. But back to the cardinals. Another eight were what we call crown cardinals, which were cardinals that were essentially paid for by Catholic monarchs throughout Europe in order to represent their interests in the Vatican. And finally, four cardinals were from very powerful Roman families, meaning that they would back whatever they thought was best for either their family or their city. Borgia needed 15 votes in order to secure a majority. There would end up being four different votes held before that majority was reached. Apparently during the first three, Borgia did not even have a plurality of the votes. 
well, luckily for Rodrigo Borgia, as Vice Chancellor of the Apostolic Chancery, he had more than enough money to pay off those he thought would be willing to give up their piety for his cause. There were supposedly eight cardinals who absolutely despised Borgia, who refused to vote for him no matter what, so they were out the window. Even the church today is willing to admit that there was definitely something sketchy about the conclave of 1492. However, there are some stories that are usually disproven from the time, such as Borgia offering one cardinal four mule loads of silver, some even saying gold. And for a quick science fact on that, mules can hold up to, on average, almost 200 pounds. That's 800 pounds of silver or gold, which is insane on any level. Due to the insane levels of corruption in this election and the ones before, Pope Julius II, the Pope after Borgia, would make a new law invalidating any papal conclave that showed signs of simony. Nevertheless, Borgia did succeed in getting the majority needed to become the next Pope of the Catholic Church. On August 11th of 1492, Rodrigo Borgia began his papacy as Pope Alexander VI. Pope Alexander's tenure was not too dissimilar from the reign of other Renaissance popes. He immediately set to work on building projects throughout Rome, mostly churches and revamping St. Peter's. He commissioned work from Raphael and Michelangelo, as well as Donato Bramante, who would later go on to spearhead the redesign and rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. Alexander was also a staunch advocate for educational rights. He rebuilt the Roman University as well as helped secure funding for the founding of the University of Valencia in Spain and the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He was also known for his kind treatment towards the Jewish population of Europe. This would lead to rumors mostly spread by one of Alexander's rivals, the future Pope Julius II, that Pope Alexander himself was secretly Jewish. He wasn't, by the way. But he did allow a mass immigration of displaced Jews to seek refuge in Rome. On one occasion, it is said that he brought in around 9,000 displaced Spanish Jews who had been dispelled from their nation. But of course, good deeds are often overshadowed by the bad. And there are a lot of bad stories that would circulate during and after the papacy of Alexander VI. As with all popes of the time, Alexander quickly got to work appointing many of his male relatives as high-ranking church officials. Giovanni, his eldest son by Venoza, was made Duke of Gandia, a city in the Valencia region of Spain, as well as given several other noble titles. He was also given the role of Gonfalonieri and Captain General of the Papal Armies, though Giovanni would end up being assassinated in 1497 by an unknown party some saying political rivals, while others saying it might have even been one of his brothers. Cesare Borgia, the second eldest son of Alexander and Venoza, was originally quickly pushed through the ranks of the church so that he was Archbishop of Valencia by the age of 17, and the next year became a cardinal. He then became the first person in history to resign from being a cardinal in order to pursue a career in the military. He would take up the role of Gunfalnieri of the Papal Armies in 1500. There's a lot to be said about Cesare. He's probably the most famous of the Borgia children, 
so I'll hold off on the rest of his achievements for now. Joffrey was married off at the age of 12 to a princess from the Kingdom of Naples in order to secure a political alliance with the Papal State's enemy. This relationship proved beneficial in the short term, but unfortunately, France would then successfully invade Naples and throw everything for a loop, which was problematic because Alexander had by this point allied himself with both France and Naples. It was a mess. Also, Joffrey's wife hated him and had affairs with both Giovanni and Cesare. Sorry, buddy. He would also appoint nine other male relatives to the position of cardinal, which is a lot of the times where that whole created nepotism came in. And not to be left out, Alexander set up multiple marriages for his daughter Lucrezia to high-profile figures throughout Western Europe. She would eventually become governor of the city Spoleto, which was a position usually only attainable by a cardinal. She was also accused of many crimes, including murdering some of her husbands and being in incestuous relationships with her brothers and father. In more modern times, it's generally accepted that none of these crimes actually happened and were created in the grand smear campaign against the Borgias. Let's now talk about slavery. A joy, I know. Christopher Columbus landed in the Americas very shortly after Alexander was chosen to be the new pope in 1492. Since he had sailed with the funding of Spain, the Spanish monarchy quickly asked Alexander to officially confirm that the land was Spain's to control, what with every European nation being under the service of the church. If Alexander said the land was theirs, it was the decree of God himself. Alexander allowed the decree, though it's unsure whether he knew to the full extent the power such a decree could have. There are plenty of historical scholars who think that Alexander gave Spain control of the New World knowing they would enslave the native population. Others, especially historians within the Vatican, say that Alexander's decrees never allowed for the enslavement of the native population. Nevertheless, enslave they did especially under the guise of spreading Christianity via forced conversions. Cries of Alexander being in favor of slavery are probably again mostly made to discredit him as a horrible man, but it should be noted that Alexander never came out against slavery, unlike many popes both before and after him. The final crime charged against Alexander was just before his death in 1503. He and Cesare were meeting with Cardinal Adriano Castellesi, a man who Alexander had made cardinal. The Pope and his son were dining with the cardinal at his villa in the summer and remained with him through most of the night. Castellesi soon became sick after the dinner, and rumor was eventually spread that Alexander and Cesare had poisoned the cardinal in the hopes of getting the wealth since all of a cardinal's wealth is given to the church upon their death. However, Cardinal Castellesi would recover from his illness. But then Alexander himself fell ill. Cesare also fell gravely ill but recovered later. However, his father's condition continued to grow worse. A little under two weeks after their dinner with Cardinal Castellesi, on August 18, 1503, Pope Alexander VI succumbed to his illness and died. Due to both his illness and the climate of Rome in the summer, 
his body quickly bloated up and began to deteriorate. It said that they had to cover his body with a tapestry at the exhibition of his body for the people of Rome because it was so bad to look at. A Venetian ambassador apparently went so far as to say Alexander's corpse was the ugliest, most monstrous, and horrible dead body that was ever seen without any form or likeness of humanity. Let's cut to the rumors first. The popular story goes that Cesare either accidentally or purposely poisoned Alexander's food while also poisoning Castellesi. Well, that makes for a great story that further degrades the Borgias, it's now usually suggested that all three men contracted malaria, with only the Pope dying from the disease. After his death, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere was chosen as the next Pope and chose the name Julius II. The new Pope, who had been a longtime rival of Alexander VI, almost immediately made sure that everyone would remember his predecessor as a vile human being. He even went so far as to close down the Borgia apartments, a section of the Vatican Alexander had commissioned from the artist Pintaricchio that were very lavish to an almost obnoxious degree. I've personally seen the Borgia apartments in person, and they are... yeah, a lot. The apartments would be sealed for the next 300 years. Rodrigo Borgia, despite being Pope, was no saint. But was he basically the devil in sheep's clothing that people tried to paint him and his family to be? His family, maybe, but not really the Pope himself. A lot of stories about him are just that. Stories, mostly spread by his successors. Did he fill the church and other political offices with his family? Yes, but so did every other Pope of that time. In fact, most of the European rulers in power at the same time as Borgia did the exact same thing. Borgia is usually considered the most evil pope of all time, but it's really just because his actions were done as a member of the clergy instead of as a secular ruler. His only real crime, and I'm stretching to call it a crime because I personally don't see it as one, is having children and publicly recognizing them as his own after being ordained as a priest. Oh, and he may have also started the slave trade in the New World, which is awful and an actual crime against humanity if he knowingly allowed that. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're making our return to Russia to explore our first ruler known as the Great, Tsar Peter of the Romanovs, aka Peter the Great. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.